Welcome to Making Sense. Jeff Snyder and I are joined by a very special guest, Isabella Kaminska, who has accomplished many things, including being the editor of FT Alphaville, the Financial Times blog. Though to refer to Alphaville as a mere blog would be a gross disservice. No, ladies and gentlemen, it's much more than that. It's the modern day equivalent of the 17th century London coffee house. Both forums for transactions, spirited debate, the exchange of information, ideas, and lies, though Alphaville is there pointing them out for our benefit. Strangers, no matter what their social standing or political allegiance, are always welcome into lively, convivial company. The topics then, like now, the stock exchange, insurance, auctioneering, politics, arts, then the not-so-old masters, now NFTs. Both the contents of the 17th century coffee mug and Alphaville could be described the same way. Black as hell, strong as death, sweet as love, and shop through with grit. Isabella, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. That was possibly the best introduction I've ever had. You deserve it. You deserve it, Isabella. We're fans of your work, a long time work. And is and uh, Alphaville is a special place. It's unique on the internet and in financial journalism. Yeah, I, I want to agree with that because you know we're very difficult on the financial media here. We're we're awful. We're often very critical of what uh, you know the, the, the media in general, but financial media in particular. And FT Alphaville is one of the oasis of truth in the uh, media landscape because. In my opinion, the reason I read you, you, you and everybody else at Alphaville is because you're more interested, and it's very clear that you're more interested in getting things correct, getting you know, getting at what's actually taking place in the in the complicated world of money and finance. And re first of all, starting with the realization that this stuff isn't easy. There's there's a whole lot of complexity to it, which is completely 180 degrees opposite of what most people get from the impression they get from the financial media, which is. Hey, a central bank does something or a government decides something and it's it's as easy as flipping a switch and everything happens the way it's supposed to. And FT Alphaville, I think you guys have branded yourself and positioned yourself to say, no, hold, hold on a minute here. There's a lot more going on and you need to pay attention to it. And then doing a better job on top of it of relaying why you need to be paying attention to it, which is something I think, that, you know, Emil, you and I have talked about. We need to do we need to talk about more is, getting people to understand why they need to understand these nuances. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I think Alphaville is definitely unique and um, it's partly because of our format and our structure and the fact that we're a community-based product. So we can get away with like technical jargon that the main paper won't and our readers tolerate us sort of also finding our way through the, through the weeds. So often Alphaville stories are a collective process of like something happens that is really hard to understand in the market and it's a bit of that like I mean we, we call it now open source inter intelligence right the kind of Bellingcat model in, in journalism <clears throat> but I you know I think we were doing that before because we would get so much feedback from these high-level readers that we were um, attracting and it was a two-way thing as much as just us and so you can sort of write a piece where you expose things, but you can also sort of put something out there and be like, well, this is strange. Why is this happening? Then you get feedback. 
and it pushes you in 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 a particular sort of way that you wouldn't normally and i don't think you can do that in a sort of more uh strict format of like the wall street journal or the main main ft um and um yeah so that 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 i think really helps of course we don't always get it right i don't want to like you know pretend we're geniuses we definitely get a lot of typos because the, <laughs> when you act uh you know when you're operating on this like literally on your feet then you do make mistakes and you do do typos we were just talking about, you know, I had a typo, a couple of, an article I wrote a couple of weeks ago that made it into the headline. <laughs> so it, was, oh, oh, no. it happens. I think people understand that it happens. Well, but again, but, I think yeah, what, the, the trick is to own it, right? Yes. Because everybody yeah. makes mistakes. Not to cover it up and just be like, you know, just own it. <laughs> exactly. You know, we're not perfect and we're not infallible. But I think that's, you know, I think that's what we're really getting at here. It's the spirit of it, that we're trying to uncover truths that have been left covered for a very long time and it's yeah. not an easy process it's not something you just say oh here it is and it's compared to the conventional media because like you know i used to work at reuters i also worked at cnbc and you know there are just like the simplicity they, they have kind of casual models of like if this goes up then that must go down or this went up because you know more buyers than sellers um this sort of like very simplistic explanation of the market and uh, causation is always, you always have to have a reason for like a very explicit, easy reason that you can just put into to a top line in a, in a conventional news story. And sometimes you just can't do that in markets because you don't know, like strange things happen, right? Yeah, and it's, I think it's one of the, my biggest complaints is that the media, not just the media, but even the financial services industry in general operates on shorthand, as you were just saying. We have these 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 you know cut up models of what cause and effect is, and we always have to. It's almost like a script. If this happens, we have the answer for it over here, written predetermined, and therefore that's what we're going to tell the audience because we don't we don't expect the audience to know any better. That's really I think my biggest complaint is the you know a lot of times, and it's it's true new media as well as old media. A lot of places that it's you know it's difficult to to to, to get toward something useful and. In terms of information and analysis, if you don't think that your audience actually cares about it, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think in modern information space, it's a really tricky balance because on one hand, like, especially for, for a newspaper like the FT, which is definitely a professional, um, you know, it's, it's geared at professional financial uh, financial industry professional. But even so, there is so much information out there. You can be a specialist in a particular sector. So if we wade in with a very simplistic narrative, that's going to frustrate the specialists. And but it, then again, if we don't pack it, you know, if it gets too like jargony, then the people who you know work in FX but not in you know high yield bonds, they won't get the you know context. They they need a entry level explanation as well. So it's always about getting the balance right. And some and you kind of push away the experts at the cost of. Um, they're the cost to get the non-experts but you know i think alpha all we try to service all these markets so we can go really deep into the gritty detail to woo the specialists when we think that topic is worth going really you know native on uh but at the same time we can do entry-level stuff as well because we're di sometimes we're dipping in into a market we have no idea about and we're learning as we go yeah, and I think, well, that's always the balance too, right? If you're trying to hit a, a, a mass media audience, you do have to, I hate to use the term dumb it down, but I mean, 
that's that's part. I mean, people who are not sophisticated investors are not going to read sophisticated articles on very complex topics, and that's that's certainly true. But I think you know, and there's also the the you know, especially the 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 mission for any kind of media outlet, especially in terms of breaking new ground, you know, new ideas. How do we represent people who have new ideas and have new new kinds of uh, ways of thinking about things? Whereas, you know, that runs against what might be contrary to established editorial standards or edit, editorial style guides or things like that. And it's always a difficult balance between this is what we're supposed to believe and this is kind of what we're, you know, what we're actually seeing. And if those two things don't make uh, perfect sense, how do we represent one for the other? And in a lot of places, it's just we'll stick to the old way because that's the old way. Right, exactly. I think... That's why I see AlphaGo's like the skunk works of the FT because we can experiment and we, you know, like even in the early days of crypto, I mean, no one was taking this seriously and we were super critical of it. Don't get me wrong, because I think that's also our job is to, you know, <clears throat> I don't want to like, you know, I have been a big Bitcoin critic for a while. Uh, mainly my main criticism was simply that I saw it emulating a lot of the same processes that it was claiming to, um, to kind of, resolve now i've changed my opinion because you know whatever reasons and um but the point is i i don't think if you are coming to market like with crypto if you're a sensible logical person then you, then you would appreciate that you that constructive criticism is good for you because if you can defy it then it makes you stronger right so people should welcome that sort of constructive scrutiny um the problem is when when um i think media takes a sort of preferential view to like uh, massively scrutinize this but not scrutinize that you know yeah. we scrutinize everything that's my point like people say i hate on crypto but i just hate on everything it's very simple <laughs> that's a, you know i think that's 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 it because there you can tell there are certain certain areas or certain topics where especially the quote unquote old media might be more of a cheerleader rather than a skeptic. And that's, I think that's absolutely right. And that's what, that's what the thing I love about Alphaville is that you guys are skeptical about everything and you should be, it should be, we're getting at what's what we believe is the correct way of understanding the world. And from an, a place of infallibility or recognize our own weaknesses and, and strengths and things like that. And it's, you have to be skeptical of everything, but in the, uh, and it's 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 uniform across many media spaces where in particular federal reserve or central bank it, they're just given complete and utter deference on every every possible topic and you can see it in you know jay powell will have a press conference and he'll he'll get nothing but softball questions and you and you want somebody up there to to say hey jay you've said inflation for over a decade or the federal reserve and the ecb christine lagarde whoever it is you guys have been saying inflation for over a decade where is it somebody should ask them I want to officially say that on, we, Alphaville, were the first uh, media to ask uh, the ECB, I think it was Mario Draghi at the time, um, a question about negative interest rates. That was our question from Lisa Pollock. We were the first to ever ask that. That was ages ago. Before, right. like, before people even thought that was possible. Um, uh, and, and, and at the time, I remember, because Lisa was in the audience, she was like, oh, I'm going to get a question. Can you send me what to write? So I, uh, what to ask? I said, oh, ask about negative interest rates. She went, what, really? Because even, even Lisa was a little bit like, come on, that's a bit wacky. Um, 
and she said them the, the question and there was like silence because people were like she's joking that's such an yeah. absurd question how dare you <laughs> yeah. and then, like draggy you could tell that now like if i re look at the video again i can see that he knows there's an issue here she she doesn't know because i fed her the question but um he knows that how he answers will have like historical implications he people in the it, he says something very tenuous and, and, and non-committal as usual they but, filibuster uh, that's what they do they filibuster they say nonsense yeah. and say nothing but if i you know i would have if i'd been another journalist i would have followed followed up on that and but nobody did because at the time everyone thought it was pointless and now here we are many years later uh negative rates are just a norm yeah exactly well that's it and, and there's no reason for there's no justification for it, at least not a legitimate one and certainly in my mind because you know whatever whatever was the original purpose of negative rates just like quantitative easing or anything else those have all fallen by the wayside because they've been disproven thoroughly time and time again and so you have to you know we want the media to be skeptical and, and scrutinize all of these programs as they continue to repeat year after year after year somebody just to say hey what are you really doing here it's exactly. not enough for you to say we're being accommodative completely i totally agree um but it's interesting to hear to, to hear that you know people investing professionals do see that oh isabella. yeah i mean mm -hmm. go ahead Amelia. isabella uh here in the United States, there's a survey company, Gallup, of course, and they have been asking American citizens for decades now what their opinion is, what their confidence is in institutions, both public and private. And so they'll ask them every year, how much confidence do you have in the presidency, the Supreme Court, Congress, uh, what else, big labor, organized religion, the media, the army, the police, and so forth and so forth. and Generally, everyone is losing confidence in these institutions, but, but the media, newspapers as a category, newspapers hold special place, at least here in America, as having some of the least, least amount of confidence held by the population at large. In fact, consistently, only Congress rates lower and as you know we recently tried to burn down congress so it's not like that's very impressive so the media is only just above congress in lack of confidence in the united states is that true in europe in britain as well and why do you think that is what we're complaining about the media right now what's missing from journalism you're on the inside why have we lost that confidence so I think um, mainly because we in the sort of, you know, we elites and the liberal mid media have been, um, you know, we've gone on the defensive because people accused us of being fake news. And rather than actually listen and, and think, oh, maybe there's some truth here. Maybe there has been some unfair re reportage. Or, and, and I actually think the unfair reportage is a function of structural issues more so than like say any kind of like malicious conspiracy. That's, that's not the case in my experience at all. Um, but there is legitimate concern with how the media has has evolved in the digital age. And, and there are these positive feedback loops um, and negative feedback loops are associated with clicks and, and how journalists uh, operate and fund themselves. And um, all of this is made for a, um, 
I think, a very fragile system which needs real scrutiny because there is no real, well, there is real journalism, but very often the journalism does, the good journalism, even if it's out there, it doesn't get to the, you know, into anybody's brain because people don't see it. So there's like a small amount of people getting really good quality journalism, but they, um, it's not necessarily the stuff that gets the clicks. And that, that is a fundamental problem that is to do with the internet structure. And, and I think, um, you know, on the inside, I would say there has been post-2016, um, you know, in the UK, we had Brexit, you guys had Trump. These were very polarizing issues. And my old editor, Lionel Barber, recently wrote a, um, a sort of reflective piece about how, you know, the FT itself <clears throat> may have like abandoned its commitment to two-sided journalism as in like properly balanced journalism during this period. And he has some thoughts about why that happened. And actually he name checks Alphaville as one of the, um, you know, one of the good things that the FT had going for it in terms of keeping the balance right. And how he, he sees Alphaville and structures like Alphaville as perhaps bringing a bit more balance back into the, into the news. I mean, he, he claims it was justifiable, but it's now time to get balance back on the table and to, to rebuild that trust. And I totally agree. And, um, and I'm glad he's being honest about it because I think one of the problems is that a lot of the media space is still in denial about it. And, my issue more bluntly is again like we talked earlier it's not so much um that one side was particularly that, that we the media were particularly hard on brexiteers or trump supporters is that we were not equally hard on the opposition so it's it's yeah. more about who we were soft on because everyone deserves scrutiny in the public profile it's not like you know trump complaining about having bad media that's that's silly, in my opinion. If you're in that position, that's what happens. I mean, the issue is that we did not distribute the criticism fairly across the board, is what I would say. Is that because of preconceived uh, notions or preconceived, you know, preconceptions about, you know, we accept what the uh, the Remain side says and we're more scrutinizing the Brexit side because people in the media tend to not, uh, I mean, uh, is it, a, is it really a function of balance or is it maybe, as we said before, the mission? You know, the media kind of lost this mission as a, as a truth seeker. I have a grandiose thesis about what's happening. I don't know how linked it is to media, but I, I don't know if you're a fan of Adam Curtis, but he has a new um, six-part documentary called I Can't Get You Out of My Head. Um, and I, I, so I've, I'm, I don't want to, like, tell you my thesis without mentioning mention that because <laughs> it's highly influenced by his work. But I think what's happened is his his analysis is very good, which is that we, the liberals, um, got complacent. We won the war. Uh, we, you know, first of all, we won the F World War Two. Then there was just, you know, this like duality with the Cold War. It was us versus them. Then we won the Cold War and we we were happy. We Our system had like prevailed and we we stopped being on guard. We, 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 we withdrew in the sense that we just focused on the good stuff. So we became consumer mad. Um, you know, everything was great. We told our own stories. We were just, you know, the, the, the media became more and more fragmented and that was fine because in a liberal society, collectivism isn't number one priority. The priority is telling your own stories and being happy. Um, but as a result of that, we, in the kind of... Um, 
privileged position of of the leading ranks when i say we i don't feel like a leader but i mean representatively in the media no you're you're selling yourself short here i think you know especially <laughs> we're going to heap praise on alphaville and the reason we brought you on here is because we think of you as a leader and we think of alphaville as one of the one of the good media sources out there so don't sell yourself <laughs> short isabella <laughs> Be kind. Just don't call me a young global leader, because that okay. is. Um, but anyway, uh, in, uh, that's a, that's a joke about web. But anyway, so um, so I think we 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 withdrew, and we abandoned our responsibility <clears throat> to keep a, an eye on whether the system was working for everybody. And as a result, you know that's how the working class sort of demographic. And this happened in Poland. Like I was speaking to my dad not long ago and this is exactly what happened in Poland in the in the 80s is that it wasn't communism didn't collapse because like the bourgeois like rose up and and fought off the communists <laughs> it collapsed because the working classes were felt abandoned by the like the, the the Polish elite who were in sort of middle class bureaucratic jobs in urban centers totally corrupt and had forgotten that like communism was supposed to work for working class people. And so actually, you know, as is famously told, the um, the revolution came from from the shipyards from, yeah. from like Valencia, that that was a working class rebellion against the communist system. Like no people forget that, right? Yeah. So similarity is there. And I think we abandoned our responsibility to the working classes and assume that they would be like, well, yes, well, clearly the Gini coefficient, whatever, it shows that my life is getting better, but it's not. And in that process, some other forces came in and decided to stir up the old power play that we had thought had gone away. And so this is Adam Curtis's analysis that actually the old forces that were out there before have not gone away. They just saw a massive vacuum and stepped in and started like trying to pull this, uh, you know, this demographic that has no leadership in, in opposing forces on the fringes. And now, and now really they're coming for the middle class liberals, except the liberals don't realize, in my opinion, and maybe you know, I'll be open, you know, people can disagree with me. But they don't realize that liberalism is not on the table. There is no real liberal liberal option. They're selling things in the UK. The conservatives are not, you know, the conservatives are both not conservative and they're not liberal. <laughs> I don't know what they there's just been massive elite capture across the world. And um and neither side, no political pro proposition is actually servicing the classical liberal perspective. That's my view. No, it's something that dovetails in what we've been talking about since we started this podcast and what I've been writing about for years which is that we're, we've undergone an economic transformation. First of all, it was globalization, which was not very well understood. Yes, there were benefits and a lot of places around the world were transformed into these miracle economies of modern industrial wonder. And that was true, there was benefits to it. But then it's something happened and sort of kind of went away. And as Emil and I, we talk about this all the time, we live in a, a non-linear world. And we, we, the implications of that is we understand that yes, things might be getting better, but if things are not getting better at the same rate they were, we notice that whether we're consciously or not, we understand that something has changed. And yes, society is advancing, but it's not advancing maybe in the same rate or the same ways it was before. And that's cause for enormous problem, especially when we don't have any type of answer for it. And in the post-crisis era, the post-2008 era, the answer has always been 
oh, quantitative easing or negative interest rates or something like that, that's supposed to solve all these problems or at least alleviate some of the uh, issues. And it never does. And it's only hardened people or at least forced a lot of people getting back to the context of the media here without being able to, to, to find answer in the media, at least because the media is not even being scrutinizing these mainstream positions. I think that's what's led to a lot of the new media and a lot of the garbage that's out there where people are just selling their own version of reality because they can, right? Nobody has any answers. Something has happened. We don't know what it is. So let's look to somebody who at least is trying to, uh, to, to find some answers for it. I think that's, that is exactly right. And of course, <clears throat> it doesn't help that post 2008, nobody has really articulated the key factors that have, um, that drove 2008 into being. I mean, yes, we've had masses of post, you know, GFC regulation and, and it's all happening. <laughs> I mean, the, the powers that be know, I think quite, quite clearly what happened, but nobody really articulates that to the common man, which is, you know, there's this perception that it was the hedge funds or it was the, uh, the, I don't know, the subprimes as to quote Wall Street, so uh, Michael Douglas's performance there, that's, uh, we, we did find that funny. Um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of shadow banking, blah, blah, blah. I mean, but, but really nobody um, has done a proper analysis of you, what is our favorite subject, which is the role of the euro dollar in, in that whole collapse. And as a, as a result, we've got, um, I think, a failure to understand how we may be not solving the problem today, but actually exasperating all the forces that never really went away. Yeah, making it worse, right? I mean, as long as that's, I mean, people are people. People are going to look for answers because they realize something's wrong. Whether they know what it is or not, they can tell. And I'm not getting answers from anybody. I'm not even getting the right questions. I think that, you know, getting back to the media, yeah, the media is not even asking the right questions on behalf of, as you were saying, working class people, because it's the working class people who, first of all, said we had to bear the brunt of the transformation of globalization to begin with, especially in the America. We have these places called the Rust Belt which were all these manufacturing jobs that just disappeared. And you can make the argument that was necessary economic adjustment, whether it was or not. I mean, there's certainly a case to be made for it. But then, you know, if, if you're supposed to go from a, a middle class industrial job working in a steel mill to a computer programmer because of the new economy, except there is no computer programming job for you to transition to, now you're really mad because you lost your old job and there's no new job to transition to and you have no idea what happened in the first place. And you're right. Everybody's all oh, subprime mortgages. And it just I mean, that never made full. I mean, even back in 2008, when everything was happening, people could tell subprime mortgages were not the reason that, you know, AIG was being bailed out by the Federal Reserve. I mean, there was something else going on there which then fed into all these conspiracy theories about, oh, the Fed is doing this on purpose. The elites are you know, uh, engineering a transfer. I mean, all this other stuff that is, has been so completely unhelpful because it, it further, you know, anybody who holds a skeptical position, you're immediately lumped into with the conspiracy theorists because you're, you're outside the mainstream. And I think that's one reason why the media, the mainstream media in particular has had such a difficult position is because you have to navigate that landmine, right? You don't want to be lumped in with a conspiracy theorist either, but yet you want to maintain some kind of a... a, a oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the problems, I did a, a, um, a video on QAnon, and I think one of the problems is very much that there are enough like little bits of truth in these conspiracy theories yeah. that are really, really, that deserve further investigation. But they kind of, you see, 
they operate in this, everyone's at home, we've got access to more information than ever before. And most people <clears throat> don't have the privilege of being able to call up someone and say, I represent the FT and do the verification work. So there's two types of intelligence here. There's the open source intelligence that you can just get yourself from, from the internet. And then there's human intelligence, which is what journalists do when we call up and we meet people and we kind of like try and get a feel for whether the people are lying to us or, or whether they're, you know, trying to, you know, deflect or whatever. And it's the combination of these two <clears throat> types of um, research methods that you should ideally create a good story. If you just overly uh, focus on one but not the other, bad things happen. Like if you only do human intelligence, we just become like a prop, like PR just captures you because you just become a, a loudspeaker for what people are telling you, right? You have to like inform yourself before you ask these people questions. Um, but vice versa, if you only do open source intelligence, then you don't have the corrective mechanism to, uh, to kind of, uh, you know, tell you, well, okay, no, that's insane. <laughs> that's just not good. No, there is a truth here. You've just extrapolated it and gone crazy, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and you need that reining in. And, and certainly, I think what has happened with conspiracies is that the, the, the presence of them actually, you're absolutely right. It makes journalists, because they are like serious people who can't possibly be associated with conspiracies, um, it, it makes them um, anxious or, and hesitant to investigate things that have a conspiracy sort of genre to them. Yeah, and I think over the last, you know, 10, 13 years, whatever it's been, it's, it's, it's almost everything nowadays. If you, if you stray even a little bit off of the mainstream line, you're painted with that kind of a, a, oh, what are they talking? I mean, you're going into an area you shouldn't be going into. And I think that's, it's, it's really, it really has ring fenced a lot of media commentary into just what appears to be cheerleading the mainstream line, at least in my opinion, yeah, there's not right. enough, there's, there's sort of a, a fear of going too far astray. Otherwise you lose all credibility in, yeah, you know, sort of an, the echo chamber. Absolutely. And it's it's almost like the equivalent I would make is like the Catholic Church. You know, you can't, yeah. you couldn't question, like, there were heresies. If you, like, dared to, like, say this or that, you'd be, you know, like Galileo or whatever. Here comes somebody with a different perspective. No, it doesn't fit our doctrine. Therefore, out, you know. And actually, that turned out to be really bad. So, um, no, I, I quite agree. And I don't know how we make that better other than, um, I mean, the, the, a good example of like what's happening in media is that, you know, clearly we have a funding issue. Clearly we have an issue with um, journalists not being able to kind of um, speak out if they think people are going into groupthink. Um, there is this sort of associated culture war situation that is creating a sort of bounty market for journalists to say the wrong thing because like if if you if you say the wrong thing and you're captured by a bounty hunter you're then named and shamed and you know they get their their their, their payback in in you know scandal. yeah just, you're excommunicated from the group right you've yeah. lost all your reputation which as a journalist is everything reputation right. is all you have so then and then meanwhile you've had all the scandals at the new york times and you know, you've had the very high profile resignations of people who claim there's been like an outbreak of groupthink and these internal lobbying groups, which I think are another reflection of what's going on and going wrong with <clears throat> with journalism, which is just the power has transferred to 
um, different sec like there's old guard and new guard principles in the media and old guard is very kind of liberal minded everyone gets you know you don't have to agree with with the the uh, all perspectives but you have to air them and you have to confront them and you have to challenge them and then there's the other perspective which is no you can't give the, these people a platform at all and i have always and like this is even before cultural wars broke out i've always argued that you don't get rid of bad ideas by like pushing them under under the carpet you have to challenge them and you have to appeal to people's logic and you have to make a better case right that is how you quash these things by you know if 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 cancelling people was going to like make any difference then everything should have finished when alex jones got thrown off twitter right <laughs> and no you're right because if when you're when you're pushing things off to the side you end up giving them new life breathing new life into them and making them potentially bigger than you than they would have been otherwise and all this has happened before i mean again the catholic church if you look to the sort of um massive kind of schism surrounding the council of nicaea and like whether or not you know the trinity should be perceived as this <laughs> or that and that caused like you know world war Two in terms of schisms and you had excommunication of the heretics who didn't they believe that i can't remember i'm not a good catholic so i can't remember which one i did such a nuanced point though that now when we look back on it it's hard to believe that there was this incredible schism well but but i can like in the modern kind of you know we're having these sorts of like exactly the same sort of fallouts over very niche very in in 50 years time people go well people were really going nuts about like what bathroom you should be using or whatever is the current rage you know um debate in town but it's strange and it's but it's happened before is what i mean this we go through these cycles right so yeah i liken it to the introduction of the gutenberg bible because once the uh, mechanical typeface and printing press showed up and then it allowed a, a structural change in the exchange of information, it completely rewrote the old way of doing things because now, you know, information flowed through very narrow channels that were tightly controlled. And we're doing something similar today with the internet. The internet has broken down a lot of barriers, except we don't really know who to trust. We haven't formed new structures that tell us what is Oh, not good or bad information, but I almost think it's about we don't know how to evaluate evidence anymore because there's tons of evidence out there. It's just that in complex topic, like let's get back to the financial world and the dollar world, what FD Alphaville does. And what I love about FD Alphaville is that you guys actually examine evidence and you do so in a very scientific and objective manner, which is I think that's the part that's missing from much of the media is we don't know how to break down complex topics and understand and interpret the evidence that we're seeing. And so we just fall back on our old standards and just say, well, you know, we don't really know anything about negative interest rates. So we'll just take Christine Lagarde's word, or, you know, Mario Draghi's word for it. And I think there's, you know, how do you solve that problem? Because there's there's got to be a balance or a marriage there between open source media that does know how to do some evidence, but doesn't get some of the other things right about journalism, where journalism, you know, there's got to be some way to, to put the two together that we can have evidence and objective uh, investigation no, and scrutiny. You're absolutely right. And I think one of the problems, and I've thought about this, and, and I've identified it as maybe, I mean, Alphaville is cynical and we joke about and, and like as a result we can be super cynical and skeptical of everything right but there is there are loads of people I encounter who are like why are you being so harsh on this why should, you know or I get emails like um, you know asking me you know why am I 
not promoting this or why don't we ever do any positive stories? And I was like, well, because that's not what we do. Like you can get that from everybody else. Like if you want the case for Bitcoin, it's out there. Like I don't need to, I, I, I try to, if, 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 if the, core media is going this way i try to like always i'm a contrarian i think it's important to so actually in the sense of like we're highly skeptical if i feel the needle is going the other way uh, as an because sometimes in a post sort of crisis situation everyone gets too negative well then you have to make the opposite case so it's really not even about being hyper skeptical it's just about offering the perspective that isn't the main one um but what i think in particular is the problem in journalism is that the journalistic process is skewed towards confirmation bias because of how it works mechanically so um you get a story idea so first of all you have a hunch that is based like like in science that like you have a theory a hypothesis i think maybe this is like happening in this particular i'll do an investigation or this is my theory about what's happening then you do some preliminary research to make sure you're not mad. Um, and then usually if you, cause you, you don't want to go to the target of your investigation in case they like throw you off course or tell you, feed you a line. Um, you tend to immediately then go to sources who confirm your perspective. So you've, you've created, you, so in that sense, you're going kind quite QAnon because you are, you are research on a hunch, then go to confirmation sources. And only at the end of the process, once you've done all that, do you reach out to the other perspective to balance things. And you have to balance, you absolutely do. But because it comes at the end of it, so you've done your pro and then your anti, sometimes you're so invested in that story by the time you get to that end, when you're doing, then, then if there's a rational explanation as to why your hunch was wrong, um, you're going to be closed off to it, not because you're malicious or even doing it consciously, but because you have invested in this story and you don't want your work to go to nothing. That's what, oh, yeah, I, so, I that's what so impressed me about uh, Stephen Goldfeld's paper. And that was in the 1970s. It was the case of the missing money that Jeff often speaks of on this show. And it reads so unlike the economic working papers that we read today. He didn't know what was happening. He wrote up a paper and at the end he said, I don't know. I don't know yeah, where the money don't know. is, but he was okay with that. Yeah. He was pursuing knowledge and hey, this is as far as I got. I'm submitting it and maybe you all can help me, but you don't see that in today's work. If you don't come to a conclusion pro or against, well, then it doesn't count. Yeah, exactly. I think that is, uh, I think we need to be, and I think that's why Alpha Law works because very often we do just nosedive into something and go, hey, this is really interesting and, we're, and, and come back, you know, and our conclusion is a bit like ambiguous about, well, you know, it could mean this, but it could mean that, hey. <laughs> uh, but the, re the exercise is just to draw attention to this new interesting development that's happening over here. And, you know, maybe there's something in it, maybe there's not, but we don't learn about it unless we don't, unless we look into it, right? Yeah, so but yeah, but you're treating your audience with honest, you're like, you're saying, look, we don't have an opinion to give you. Here's something you should pay attention to. Think about it for yourself and come to your own conclusion. I think that's really part of what's missing in, in terms of evaluating evidence. Sometimes it's here, here's the evidence, here's the story, here's something that's going on. We're not gonna tell you what it means because we're not really sure either. You can decide for yourself whether it's you know, how important it is and what it actually means. I think there's, there's tremendous value in doing just that kind of a service. Yes, and I think the other problem is also this like, 
there is in certain quarters when if you're not in like a contrarian mindset or your publication doesn't know for that there is this sort of pressure to just like go on the bandwagon and repeat things so there's this there's this sort of amplification of like somebody has a particular take and then it just amplifies like amazingly through like twitter whatever social media um and it's it's by that point it's kind of reminds me of um is it is it hitler or one of those guys you know it's long as you say the lie enough times so you start to begin to believe it right the big so lie here yeah. it's not even the big lie because the big lie is like oh i'm gonna send rockets to mars by next week right uh, whatever i'm not saying somebody's doing that <laughs> no one's yeah was i didn't have anyone in mind about that um but it's more that um it's more of a kind of repetition. It's like gaslighting. It's like this is blah, blah, blah. And I don't think people are doing it consciously. They're just repeating it. But because you hear the same thing from all these quarters, you just assume it to be true. Like global financial crisis was caused by sub subprime mortgage. You just hear it, blah, 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 all the time. Well, that then it must be true. Um, and you don't actually then bother to see if maybe it wasn't true or it was, you know, perhaps decontextualized. Um, I mean, I made a huge mistake last week. I'm really conscious of this, but I made a really big mistake last week because I got triggered by um, a story. So here in the UK, we've had a, um, a, a really horrific situation where a young woman got murdered um, and every, every, everyone's panicking about it. And um, the police had suggested that women stay at home until the culprit was found. And there was a discussion in the House of Lords about it, and, the, and a baroness called Baroness Jones made, so it was a clip of her sort of saying, well, I think a much better policy would be if we had a male curfew from 6pm, so no males out on the streets until 6pm. And she said it so reasonably and so articulately. It seemed very sincere, and, like I, and so I fell for that. And I always, I'm like the person preaching to everybody, you have to see the, like the full cliff, right? You, right? But it seems so, like that particular clip seems so, um, you know, bo what's it called? Like, it didn't seem like it had any extra bits to it. Um, and of course I went a bit nuts on Twitter about it because I thought it was an absurd idea. Um, and then I found out that actually she was just using one absurdity to highlight a different absurdity. So she wasn't, she didn't actually mean it, but no one, has seen the full clip and it doesn't matter because all of like the British media have like gone nuts about it. And as far as like, if you ask us, you know, Joe Bloggs down the street, they think that some woman has in the house of laws has pro seriously proposed that we do a man care for you from 16. <laughs> and it doesn't matter that it's not true. It's become part of the myth, like the public mythos. Do you, yeah. do you see what I mean? Yeah, and it's, I, I think it's, again, get back to the internet technology that's broken down the barriers of information that we, it doesn't get filtered into, you know, it doesn't go through editorial processes, it doesn't go through, you know, expert opinions, it doesn't go through those kinds of channels that, that say true or false. I mean, this, this, this did happen, but it didn't happen the way you think it does. And there's good and bad. I mean, there's tremendous positives about this free flow of information across any kind of boundary that, that now, now doesn't exist. And there's also there's there's always dark sides to it too, and that's I think, you know, how long did the the you know when the printing press first showed up? I mean, how long did it did it take before we settled into sort of a a new uh, new information equilibrium? I think it was a it was quite a per long prolonged period of upset. So, 
you know, this, as you said before, this kind of thing, this, it's not necessarily cyclical, but it repeats. New technologies breed new, new, or break down barriers and reorient society. And the, and the other like analogy is what we had in the UK was the penny press. And I think you guys had something similar uh, where, you know, because of the printing press, you know, the cost of creating pa pamphlets, pamphlets yeah. went to nothing. And so um, like the internet today, there was just a ple like e endless amounts of like rubbish circulating gossip, you know, libelous, uh, you know, it was nuts. And the noise to signal was like on a ridiculous ratio of favoring noise. And um, and it was out of that climate that the FT was born, or financial news as, as it was back then, um, because people realized that actually it pays to pay a professional to sift through all this stuff. But yeah. at the moment, no one has clocked this. So getting, you know, we moan about like, you know, democracy being hijacked by the Russians or whatever. But no, but the obvious solution is paying for your media. If you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. You get what you pay for. Isabella, what about some of the outfits uh, like Axios and for sports journalism, journalism, the athletic, where you do pay to get information. Are we moving towards something what you just described? And maybe in a couple of generations, we'll look back and see the rebirth of a new sort of journalism we can uh, count on. Yes, I, I mean, um, I think that's still going to be a very hard sell to the average man on the street <clears throat> because they've become so accustomed to not paying for, for news. But um, the, it's better than the alternative, which is which I which I just read about this week, is that like the Guardian is increasingly going to go to a, to a world where journalists are paid uh, on the basis of their clicks, um, mm -hmm. which is a horrific feedback loop because yeah. the information that like sells isn't necessarily the information that people need. So. Um, or in any way worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. That's, well, I mean, that's part of the editorial process is not just saying this information is valid, but it is curating information to, to prioritize. This is the important stuff. This is the trivial stuff and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a, there's a massive function that the journalism, journalism in general is supposed to uh, perform for society. And it's, 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 it's right now, it's, I mean, I, I have tremendous sympathy for your job because it's really difficult to navigate all of these these kinds of issues and try to get it right. And it's a market problem, isn't it? Because, yeah. um, you know, how do you, you are always going to end up in a situation where if, if journalists, gets paid, journalists get paid for populism, uh, popular posts, you, you're, you're not going to get high quality stuff because unfortunately, most people have no bandwidth. Right. Isabella, Jeff, if you don't mind, if I could transition, I can't oh, think of a segue. If I was a professional, <laughs> I could think of one. You mentioned the word market, Isabella. So Thank speaking you. of market, uh, I would say that we have been on a glide path since 2008 in a particular direction, more central bank unorthodox policies and continuously weak economy. But the politicians have stayed out of it. Last year, we had a serious shock, a really unusual one with the corona. And I don't know if people, I would sense, I would guess that they believe we're just going to go back to the way things were. We're just going to continue on with just central banking and politicians are off to the side. I think that may be changing. I think we may look back and see that this was the beginning of the end 
of a, as we enter a new order. And I think the politicians are going to become much more involved in deciding economic outcomes, economic policy, monetary policy even, and sidelines of central banks, because I don't think they've done a very good job, the central banks. And I think the politicians who have to face the voters every so often are feeling the heat. So what do you think about our future? Is it going to be more of the same or are we going to start seeing things like universal basic income and modern monetary theory, that sort of big change? Well, I mean, I'm not as expert in what's going on in the, in the US now as I as say here in the UK, but I think UBI is clearly on the table. And I think um, furlough has normalized this because furlough is uh, effectively a, a trial in UBI. Um, and Can you tell our audience, Isabella, because that's one of those words that never made it across the Atlantic. What is furlough? What is actually uh, happening in Britain now? Do you know what? Nobody knew, knew this word until last year, and then somebody like found it in a box left over from like the dark <laughs> or whatever. And <laughs> it's basically when you pay someone not to work because of whatever reason, but you still want them contracted, um, and you are basically... Um, paying them not to work. Um, so I think you guys had something similar. You know, you didn't, you had stimulus no. checks. That's yeah. what you never had the furlough, of course, being really dumb. I should have known that. Please, please cut that. <laughs> um, but yes, of course, because America is, so we had furlough and um, we also have the NHS, which makes a very big difference. Um, and we had the Thursday clap for the NHS. I don't know if you heard about that. Yeah. Uh, well, is that the story with Greensill? No, 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 oh. no. <laughs> the NHS. Celebrating the National Health Service. And, it, it, and was the it was very Maoist. It was very Maoist. It was like everyone would come out with their pots and pans on a Thursday and we would do a, celebrate, like a celebratory clap for the good that the NHS was doing. And Boris Johnson would be leading the clap and so would high profile celebrities. And if you were not seen clapping, that was a red mark against you because <laughs> you well, were obviously I, not I didn't, one. I didn't know that. I hope that gets cut out too. Well, luckily, Embarrassing. It, did. it did. Thank God. Because that was, <laughs> as a Polish person, I just, that wasn't, it wasn't not my thing. But um, anyway. Well, no, had, you're, it was very Mao. It's, that's what the Maoist Chinese did. The Cultural Revolution is you have to, you have to signal your, your, um, uh, your loyalty to whatever the government uh, effort of the day is. And of course, under Maoist terms, it's, it could change by a daily basis. Which is sort of the point. How do we weed out uh, 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 people who are objecting, right? That was the absurd thing. Like in in COVID time, it, everything is a contradiction, and we are, and everyone is exactly like that. We still have to clap no matter what. Like we, you turn after you turn, we still have to clap. As if, yeah, one like, day it's you're clapping that masks are no good. The next day you're clapping that masks are good, and then you know it can change on a daily basis. And I really, the, pro, the point is to get you to accept no matter what the government says. And I, as a Polish, I've never had to reference my Polish roots as much as I did in the last year. And people think I've gone crazy, but you know, I try. I don't. I think my team thinks I've gone crazy, but like I am a Pole and I have like living memory of this. And as a result, I am unnerved by it. Maybe I am being over the top and maybe that's why my, my friends think I've gone down some weird radical path, but I haven't. I'm not radical. I'm a very moderate person, but, 
but it is it is like visceral for me i can't subscribe to that sort of stuff my mother we, does hey wheel and i have talked about this a lot and i've written about this for years too is this creeping socialism that is a byproduct of the lack of answers in this post 2008 environment i mean most people don't understand communism and socialism to begin with they don't really know what it is it sounds great collectivism always sounds terrific from the outside because it's unity solidarity all of these types of things that sound really terrific and you don't really understand what it is and you're thinking you know jay powell says the economy is booming right now i don't see it so maybe the socialism stuff is maybe it can't be that bad and so i think you know what's happened is with the under because there has been a lack of answers for so long people are searching for alternatives and socialism is a very well-established alternative that is very sellable it's very it's very easy for somebody to say capitalism is to blame for all your problems freedom isn't really freedom you're actually a slave all of the stuff that Karl marx talked about many years ago that stuff has become true capitalism inequality blah 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 next thing you know people who might not normally be sympathetic to clapping for the nhs are suddenly doing so enthusiastically because you know yeah, what absolutely. else are they going to do <laughs> absolutely and you know we on alphaville have had a series for a long time called the um the entire economy is fire festival and the point of that series series really is that you know what we have at the moment is sort of just a it's i wouldn't call it capitalism in the in the in the conventional sense it's a sort of weird corporate capitalism which has become infiltrated by all sorts of corrupt influences and um it's also a you know the fake it till you make it thing and all all of that stuff collectively um has has created a failing in capitalism but when people want to displace it with an alternative it's still the best system that we have and capitalism but it has to be in my opinion we need to rediscover like we have to shed the crappy bits we've applied to it we've got to get away from corporate capitalism because actually if you read lenin lenin knows that eventually like, his whole prediction is that capitalism eats itself because it will create a massive monopoly and become like uh, you know a uh, authoritarian um state you know system it's just you know that is where amazon is going right so we it's just we don't have any votes in how amazon operate i mean unless you're a shareholder right so um and even huh. then well it's like schumpeter schumpeter said that look opposite lenin capitalism does should never stand still creative destruction we should never end up with a as emil calls it a cul-de-sac where we do have that monopoly situation i think what needs to be rediscovered is the capital part of capitalism we've lost that you know wealth isn't money it isn't it isn't numbers on your bank statement wealth is productive processes that are efficient you know it's real businesses that's what yeah. capital is supposed to be and we've gone to this financialist or financialism model that is sort of capitalism resembling and yeah. it kind of looks that way but it's really not and I, I absolutely agree with that and a good segue between the former conversation and this one is that obviously one of the problems with journalism in my opinion is the whole if it's free you're the product model of silicon valley because that is um that is has mispriced journalism it has you know we that's one of the reasons why journalism is is losing sight of itself but the if you're free your the product system is a real thing and and in um in the capitalistic concept in the version of that i think what we're having is this ubi situation because 
UBI, furlough, whatever, um, great, it sounds fantastic. And I used to think that UBI was a good idea. I genuinely did. And I was, so I have no, you know, I, when I was pushing back against all the other stuff, I, I thought UBI was the answer, especially because um, I thought there was a, um, um, a liquidity issue that needed to be, you know, un the genie had to be um, released. But in the current con context, I'm, I just worry because we know so much more about two-sided markets and about how if it's free, okay, so you get your money from the state, but how can you ever protest the state if you're so dependent on it for your UBI check? And yes, it's universal and you can put it into some sort of legal um, you know, codex so that no one can ever be discriminated against it. But then they, they also said that about all sorts of other things. And now, now what we're learning from COVID, I think, is that discrimination doesn't have to happen like on a government level to really be discriminatory because the corporates end up like enforcing these policies. And it's the, um, you know, so I, I'm not cool with that because um, I think generally speaking, okay, if it's universal, there is a sort of equilibrium level to it. So perhaps it all evens itself out. But in the MMT um, example, and I'd be interested to hear what you think, is, um, you know, the idea is that we can balance this off with tax, right? So you'll never get inflationary because we'll just tax everybody, right? But what are they going to do? And uh, maybe I, I need to ask Rohan more, uh, Rohan Gray, who's my main inf information provider on MMT. Um, so you tax more, but if you're taxing, you're you're still going to spend that 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 tax. It's not like the, the unless you actually expire the money from the system by doing the opposite of QE. That system, the money still stays in the system just because you're taxed. It just gets transferred to like spending in the public in the public sector, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I think what MMT proponents would say is that taxation isn't really their inflation inflationary lever. What they would say is the jobs bank is the inflation lever. What they do is they would absorb jobs into the public program, which I think is a, looks a lot like your furlough program, I believe. So, you know, essentially they're using the labor market as their inflation moderator. We will release labor back into the private labor force. We'll take it out of the private labor force by, by um, increasing or lowering the wage rate as needed. And yet it's all, it's all the same thing because then you still have a bunch of economists sitting in a room trying to determine what they believe is the optimal wage rate that will allow them to control inflation and all these other economic variables. And money is a part of it too, the central bank printing money or doing quantitative easing or its equivalent. But by and large, it's all of these things put together where it's the same problem where you have a, a small group of people operating on imperfect information, believing that they don't they don't have imperfect information and they can they can they can guide in a completely complex economic system through large margins of error, which is essentially right. what the job bank is. It's, it's absorbing a lot of error. And, and it's presumably like you know how do you how do you tweak that lever justify because at the moment obviously you can make you know some sort of you know covid gives you a justification to say essential versus non-essential right? right exactly um but it's still is, an arbitrary that's i think what it comes down to in my view is it all breaks down because it's all arbitrary 
Now yeah. the MMT are saying, no, 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 this is all well thought out. It's all, we've got mathematical algorithms. We've got complex models that tell us this is what we do when we do. And it's still the same junk that central bankers use now that had led them into negative interest rates and quantitative easing. It's just really the idea that you can, you can control a complex system through very simple means. And I, also, you know, I, just, I like this idea of people being used as a lever in this way, because these are real jobs, real people like some, you know, if you yeah, one day, one day you're on the private payroll, the next day the government's paying you to do God knows what. I mean, they're, they're, they're giving you a job doing what? I mean, you know, shoveling leaves out in, in the park or so. I mean, who knows what it is? You're right. How well, are you going to live as a person? Furlough, you, you do whatever you want. You, don't, you just got a job to just live and consume. Your job is to consume. <laughs> that is basically your job. That's, you know, if that's the extent of the MMT jobs program, it will, I mean, it'll fail very quickly because that doesn't create wealth. I mean, that's, that's always been the argument against the Keynesian view of building pyramids in the desert. Yeah, you can build pyramids in the desert on the government's dime, but that doesn't do anything for an economy in the long run. And if, yeah. if MMT is going to rely on that type of wasteful, arbitrary jobs decision, it won't create any kind of wealth that will, that will uh, allow them to marginalize or demarginalize an economy that's struggling because what an economy struggling needs is real capital. So I think one of the things they propose is, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this too, is um, that, that they, it's not just that the people are going to be sitting on furlough, they're going to put this idle labor to work, like reframing the, um, the entire sort of capitalist system to be green, right? So there's going to be green jobs, green, green, green um and esg and all this stuff and so i have like i generally think that the esg model has not been properly scrutinized i don't think social entrepreneurship as a concept has been properly scrutinized and i think there's a sort of reluctance to take a critical eye to it because it is wrapped in this um you know force shield of um good good deeds right it, it, it's it's all supposed to be about you know, moral, ethical investing. And so how can you possibly do a critique of it? You'd be a, a horrible meanie to do it. So, and yet the road to hell is often paved with good intentions. So I'm very suspicious that there aren't like gonna be massive externalities from that. And I think today, I mean, it's questionable whether this was the only reason, but AstraZeneca, obviously all the vaccine makers are doing it at cost and we've had AstraZeneca um, be denied, uh, you know, they've been cancelled in Europe because of like probably Brexit war, but in reality, you know, they're claiming it's unsafe. Um, and AstraZeneca price goes up. And my initial reaction was, well, is it going up because the markets like that it's not producing something at cost? Yeah, well, I mean, there's always the argument, as you, the, the road to communism is always paid with good intentions. And I think the problem is, especially, you know, Lenin figured this out and Deng Xiaoping certainly understood this in China, was spontaneous organization. The idea that we can have people gather together in spontaneous ways in order to efficiently handle problems, which is something that you cannot organize from a top-down approach. So if we're talking about, you know, going back to MMT and the jobs bank and things like that, you want to do, you want to put together this, you, you know, you have this giant pool of labor that you can use however you want, and you want to transition, you know, you want to use them for a green project, for example. Well, you're not spontaneous, you're not allowing spontaneous organization by skill. 
You want to build a green power plant, you need, you need specific skills in order to do that. And you need specific skills being available at specific times. And you can't just simply plan from the top and say, okay, we're going to have the engineers do this, then this, you know, then we need specialized labor that knows how to do whatever it is building a power plant. You know, it's the very same thing that Mao ran into in his great leap forward when he had everybody, you know, uh, turning their backyards into pig iron uh, smelting facilities. He, you have to allow for spontaneous organization. As we said before, if you've got people working as one job in the private sector one day, and then the very next day they're supposed to be working on a green project that they have no skills they're adaptable for without any kind of transition period, it's spontaneous organization, I think, is one of the, the secrets to capitalism. Absolutely agree. And I think, again, we discussed it when we we're talking about the media is that that's why you can't be a jack of all trades because no. the experts won't like want to read you. So you have to acknowledge there's an expert market and a jack of all trade market. And um, the two are completely different. And, you know, the gig economy and all that, that's servicing those like very low skill transferable jobs. But you can't yeah, the labor force is not homogeneous it's not it's not like you're just looking at a unit of work right yeah. and i think that's that get you know especially you look at some of these these dsge models that uh, even mmts are mmt is nothing more than neo-keynesian without neo-keynesianism without restraint and they really look at these things very simplistically like there's we just have a unit of work we need a certain number of workers and this this stuff will happen and it's it's overly simplistic because again it's it doesn't pay any attention to the fact that you know labor force even any big project is not homogeneous you know you have to have specific arrangements and specific skills and that's really what the market is good for it's assigning values and so that we can have a certain number of available when it needs to be available and, you know spontaneous organization is um the key to efficiency and it's just there's no way to achieve that in a top-down approach but I'm sure someone will say we've got machine learning or something to do it for us. Like, so, cause it all goes down this like goss plan road, doesn't it? Where, um, mm -hmm. you have this like grand vision that you don't even need currency as a settlement tool because you don't need that like middle man float of the currency to, in, to incentivize the work or the demand to, to balance. Right. So you don't need that, balancing agent right um and ghost plan was this you know it just didn't ever work because you do in the end i think the soviet system had um it was known as um oh God, i've forgotten it now no you, but you're, everything can't be just in time there has to be okay. some margin of error because we live in an unpredictable world and you're right i think there's a there is a lot of people especially economists in particular who believe that through power of computing, through advances in mathematics, that we can plan to the nth degree so that everything just fits perfectly in a predictable fashion. And that's just, you know, if you know anything about Benoit Mandelbrot or chaos theory or you know, fractals and things like that, you know, that's just, it's, an, it's a ridiculous assumption to believe that you can, you can mathematically plan out optimal outcomes for even a slightly complex system, let alone an incredibly complex system like the global economy. It's just, it's, it's, exactly. it's not doable. And it's a, it, the system I was thinking of was Comic-Con and um, I just wanted to say, and, and that was the sort of loose sort of um, tie, tie up of all the different um, communist countries in their economic system. But they, they couldn't survive 
they had to have an external and internal uh, they had to have an import export market beyond yeah. their system it, it was the only way to get hard currency it wasn't yeah it couldn't work as a closed system yeah isabella um, can i follow up on your last oh, point regarding ghost plan because oh, yeah. I, I think some of our audience members may be listening and some of them may agree with ubi or esg or mmt and others may not but I think in a fair number of cases, people are assuming that that political belief will be left to the realm of politics and it'll be kept out of finance and investments. But I don't believe that'll be the case. And I was wondering what you think. To me, the free market, the movement of capital, the ability to invest in this company or that company, is going to be severely constrained that it's incompatible with the movement towards MMT, UBI, ghost plan. And it's going to be government saying, these are productive investments. These are unproductive investments and those will have taxes on them and all manner of capital controls or whatnot. And I, what do you think of that idea is that this is not just a political discussion. It will come into markets? Of course it will come into markets because markets were fundamentally what broke the USSR. Like, you know, you can try and top down, like you can try and create a regime that tells you what you want to consume, right? And which is, and that's what cost plan basically does. And to balance the books, if there's too many bananas, you have to create a narrative as to why this week banana bread is a fantastic thing for everyone to make. Because then that clears the surplus, right? And you, you, you nothing goes to waste. And likewise, if there's suddenly a deficit of apples, then it's, it's important to put out the propaganda that, you know, <clears throat> it's been noted that there is uh, some sort of terrible poison going through the apple community. I don't, I don't know. Some sort of fake news. This is how you regulate it. Or you do it with the prices, basically. So bananas get cheap and apples get, get expensive. Gospel plan doesn't allow for prices, so you have to use the propaganda, right? So that is essentially my point. So you're just replacing pricing as the signaling with some other like signal, which just turns into like in a while everybody will know and interpret that when there's bad news about bananas, well, that just means you know the equivalent of what the price would say, right? People aren't stupid, and and in, in communist Poland you know, it became transparently obvious what was happening. And this is why black markets emerged. And this is how, um, you know, a market for, you know, Levi jeans or Coca-Cola, all the stuff that you couldn't really easily get. Um, anyone who could, who had the access um, and ca capacity to bring those like um, supply chains in into the Soviet Union was like chief rentier, and and they were often people in government positions, and and they would like you know you created a two tier market that was even worse than the one before. Like so, the markets always penetrate because because people are resistant to brainwashing. I don't believe people are drones who can just be entirely you know, um, controlled by Putin, you know, or whatever. People have their own free will. And if they don't want bananas, they won't want them. And you can try and force bananas on them, but they, they just won't take them. And the market will always signal that. That is my point. And when you have a massive imbalance like that between people's wants and their, and, and, and the capacity to service those wants, um, if you can't, make people happy they will want to leave your system and then you get sort of people trying to leave you know through the berlin wall or whatever 
um, and, and the system cracks down on you because that is a signal to the rest of the world that your system isn't that great. <laughs> so either way, um, the market always comes in. Um, okay, so maybe algorithms, maybe AI is better at anticipating your wants and doing, you know, perhaps, you know, there is, I am sympathetic to the idea that maybe people share enough information through algorithms, um, then the system will be able to adapt to real wants and desires fairly and squarely. But not in a world where we're also simultaneously pushing a climate agenda, because quite frankly, those two things do not correlate at all, because I, I can guarantee you, no matter how green and virtuous you are, most of your wants and desires are not going to be... Um, uh you know serviceable under a green agenda that is wanting to reduce carbon emissions so you will be pissed off and then the market will have to um signal that in some way no or am i just being stupid well i know that's I... why markets will not be allowed to continue the prices they emit will be not appreciated by government that was the point i was trying to yeah, make yeah. price what is price like price price is, is information price is everything price is it's just is creating the, new the yeah, yeah it's, what I'm it's, saying is when you suppress prices or like, you know, yes. go back to Diocletian and he did a price edict, right? It was ridiculous, didn't work. All you do is you create a market for new prices. Different signals are interpreted. Oh, that must be, you know, that. Right. You know, it, it's, just, it's just a euphemism for a price. Okay, so you don't use conventional numbers, but people aren't stupid. That's my point. They will, they will create their own parallel pricing. <laughs> Right. That's that's what always happens in the top down restrictive regime is that you end up with, as you said, a black market approach, which is, OK, the official sector says this about bananas, but we don't believe it because we know it's not true. And that's really what prices are supposed to do. It's supposed to cut through all that arbitrary bull and say this is what is actually happening. And I don't believe you can come up with an algorithm or a mathematical equation that can properly match supply with demand, taste or demographics or whatever the, the fundamental factors are is because we don't know what tomorrow will look like. Exactly. And all statistical mathematics is based on the stupid assumption that tomorrow will look like today or look like the past. And you can't, you can't math beyond that. You need to watch Adam Curtis because that's how he, that's his whole critique. His whole yes. critique that Google, have you seen it no have i haven't got to watch it so um his whole critique is based on the fact that google operates exactly like that if you like this you will like that and it assumes that how you were before is going to be how you it, are that you don't before. that you're a homogeneous unit that never evolves when the human species is constantly changing constantly evolving and there is no machine learning that can predict taste or anything tomorrow let alone next year or the year after so as you said in the top-down regime what will end up happening is because we can't predict the government will have to come in and say oh well you can't do these things because we didn't predict that you would like to do those things and what's interesting is that he also says you know the way google does that he sees it and i you know people who work in ai have critiqued this but i like it it's simplistic but i like it he claims that that's very much how conspiracy theories work so google just spots patterns if you like this you will yeah. like that and then that's how conspiracy theories work as well well if this happened over here then that happened over there then that must mean the two things are connected and blah 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 and so he creates this sort of um you know like analogy that there is google is kind of like creating this uh false reality through that just the way 
that QAnon does and whoever does, you know, we all, cause you know, there's blue anon and there's QAnon and now I like to call EU anon because <laughs> why not? Right. Everyone's got an anon. Everyone's going comp like the, the, what is wrong about the QAnon narrative is that people think it's singular to just that tribe. It is everyone is doing their own QAnon. Everyone is their own, like it's happening on multiple levels. But, um, uh, the point being with, with Adam Curtis is that, it's this sort of, um, what, what, what the current system doesn't let you do is that there is no algorithm monitoring. If you hate this, you will loathe that. It's always on the positive side, right? right. That's my addition to, to, the, to the table because, because you, the, the market is asymmetric because it's only focused on what you will like, not on what you will dislike. Do you know what I mean? Amazon yeah. isn't tracking what you hate in the same way because it doesn't know. What you I think, yeah, that's, it's because it's still it's still in infancy stages. I mean, it, you know, we talk about AI as if it's, it's some kind of developed technology. It's really not. It's really not sophisticated enough. I mean, really, what Google is is Google is a mirror. It holds up a mirror to society. This is what society looks like, and this is what we believe society is talking about or thinking or pref you know, this is their positive preferences. And when you're holding up a mirror to humans. It, you know, it, we kind of project anything onto it because we're looking back at ourselves and we know that we're complex organisms and complex societies and complex systems. So it's not that Google is solving problems that we don't know we need to have solved. They're really just taking information and trying to package it in a certain way that they think is be will be palatable when in fact they don't really know. They're really just they're, they're really kind of alpha testing their own stuff. And, and that mirror point is so important because I look at the world now and I just see mirrors everywhere. Everyone is a mirror of each other and they don't see that they're a mirror. Like, you know, so, you know, you have Russia Gate, which is the mirror of QAnon. I mean, they'll say it's not, you know, I, I, you know, just hear me out. Like, fair enough. They'll say it's not as egregious because we don't storm the capital. But, you know, the conceptually, conceptually, if you are going to be completely neutral about it, you had QAnon trying to do a, to, to do a sort of real life potential coup uh, with with the storming of the capital, but they would say that the uh, the, the 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 blue anons were trying to do a coup with with the Russia Gate um, continuous sort of attacks on Trump. You both are like alleged to be coups, right? Nobody is taking the election results seriously. Um, I, they're a mirror. They're a mirror of each other. And then and then you have the mirror between Putin and and and, and what's happening in Russia versus what's happening in 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 america which i also find fascinating so you know for years we tell everybody that putin is a um unelected well he's rigged the elections he has no you know claim to to power and uh anyone who's challenging him and doing insurrections against Putin, you know, that's, that's fair. And Putin goes, no, my elections were totally fair. You know, you can trust my elections and, you know, rejects the call for independent monitors. And then you have the exact same thing happening on, on, on the American side. And it's just, it's like a, it's a funny joke for people in, in, in countries that have, you know, cause it's a, it's a mirror of everything that we've, they've been told about their own system for so long. Yeah, and in a way, it's it's just, it's harmful because you're saying, well, now Google tells me that everybody else thinks like I do, which means that what my what I thinking must be right. And again, you know, getting back to the breakdown in journalism and the lack of curation of of good data, that's really what this mirror is. It allows us to believe that what we think is what everybody else thinks, 
And it's also, you know, fracturing, breaking down. Between, like, if I believe my cause is virtuous, then I will find the reasons to justify that cause. And I will find my enemy, you know, everything that I um, project on my enemy, you know, the enemy is also projecting on me. Because once society gets polarized to such a degree, the only thing that differentiates you is whether you think your underlying cause is virtuous. But the enemy is just a mirror of you. It's, 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 you know, it's basically that. Um, because it's human nature to create those processes. And that's, you know, again, the breakdown of evidence, the ability to, to evaluate evidence objectively and, uh, you know, in, in a correct manner, which will allow people to say, oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm making the wrong choices. And I think that's really, I think that's one of the, the downside or the dark side of the the breakdown, the, the introduction of internet technology and the free flow of information is that it has held up a mirror to humans. And as humans often do, we project some of our worst traits into everything and everybody else rather than, you know, yes, there are some positive aspects to it, obviously, but it's, it's really the dark side tends to come out. And then these things are amplified by the age in which we live in, you know, this post-crisis era of, you know, yeah. tremendous strain. You know, I think people really don't understand what the, the amount of pressure and strain that is created by the lack of economic growth. It's not so much that the economy is contracting. It's just not growing in the way that it used to. Again, we live in a nonlinear world. And if we're not growing at the same rate, that creates a, a tremendous amount of strain and pressure that goes just completely unappreciated. And it amplifies all of these negative trends that are now front and center everywhere. Isabella, we have been talking for a little bit over an hour now, which is great. I want to keep going, but to be uh, mindful of everyone's time, has there been anything that we haven't covered that you wanted to talk about? Before we we finish, Emil, I want to interrupt. I want to give people a sense of what Isabella does at Financial Times. Uh, She wrote an article, I believe it was October of 2019 or or, uh, a little over a year ago about real-time gross settlement system, which is something, Emil, you and I talked about for a couple of weeks there, you know, chips and Fedwire and and CLS and all of these, you know, these very intricate plumbing issues. And I love this quote that you wrote, Isabella, in this article. I will link it into the description of the podcast. What you said was, it is FT Alphaville's contention that there is an intimate and underappreciated relationship between system liquidity needs and costs and the real-time growth settlement technology central banks use to provide settlement services because these systems do not function smoothly unless commercial banks maintain sufficiently large reserves to cover payment settlement risk. And that is not something that you'll hear in the mainstream media, nor is it something that you'll hear officials and central bankers agree with. And I thought that was an absolutely brilliant observation. And it, it, in, in terms of our show here, I think it really highlights the benefit and uh, the, uh, the positive aspects of Alphaville because it's a, not only a tremendous insight, it's a tremendous insight into something practically nobody is paying attention to, nor do they really understand why they should. Well, it's really funny because um, uh, I that piece was actually picked up by I, I shouldn't say which institutions, but certain institutions, uh, you know, I, I went on a little trip. I'll just say it was to Switzerland. And um, and certain, you know, they, they were like, well, we're thinking the same sort of thing. And that was, so I, I think the guys in the know know this. I think there is no denial that the float 
you know, what we all that technology has done is increased the sort of the float. Like that is what has to payments. Payments risk is real. And even if you settle it in real time, you still have an underlying like because of just the way the world works because of, um, you know, people go, just, you know, daylight overdrive. Well, yeah, daylight overdrives. It just and they're called daylight for a reason. Yeah. And they, but now in the globally connected, connected system, it's not daylight everywhere at the same time. Right. right. And that's where you get herstat risk. Yes. Uh, and that relationship between herstat risk netting and real time and why we went to real time versus netting because of herstat risk has been underappreciated and netting you know real time seems like intuitively fantastic because you square everything off as you go but netting also had its you know both systems have their advantages and disadvantages and um and net and gross is great but it suffers from the fact that it has to be massively funded. Pre-funded. Pre-funded. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That you didn't, netting was intuitive. Reason like, you know, the city of London was a netting system. I mean, the reason we have a square mile is because of this day-to-day -day settlement uh, squaring that had to happen in the city of London, right? Um, the the reason they did that was because it was an efficiency. Like you, you, you only, you know, you net it off and you only had to actually settle things on the margin and that was an efficiency now it created other risks and there's been a consensus in this area that real time takes away these uh, risks but it replaces them with collateral risk that's my point because it has to be pre-funded now if you pre-fund and you're using treasuries and say like you know in the eu you're using um you know greek bonds or whatever you're just you're just transferring the risk to the collateral that is pre-funding the system do you see what and I mean? Absolutely. And you're putting strain on the desire to, or the need and desire to hold collateral and which types of collateral, which creates other knock on implications, which, you know, as you said, people think real time growth settlement is the way to go. Therefore, we stop even investigating any any uh, downside to it when yeah, it, it just moves the bogey someplace else. You haven't eliminated the problem. You've changed it. And the reality is, is that that massive balance sheet that we've created at the central bank is a function of how how we underappreciated the scale of funding that we need to maintain that um, real-time settlement system, in my opinion. And that's why I don't think we can ever go back to zero because, or to a very small and nimble balance sheet, because that's simply the cost of, it's, you know, I did a story comparing it to um, prudential, so, so, you know, so prudential sort of risk management um, post-coronavirus, but with supply chains. It's like we were operating a just-in-time economy and we had no reserves, right? So when the crisis happened, nobody had enough, you know, face masks, food, whatever, supermarkets had three days' work, whatever. And now post, like, just like after the financial crisis, we were like, oh, my God, that's obviously not enough. We're going to have to, like, have a lot more reserve in the system just in case a crisis like this happens. But nobody appreciates that reserves cost money because reserves are a, um, a missed opportunity, right? Because they either go off or they won't be sold. You know, why hoard a load of stuff when you don't need to? It's, it's a cost. And I think the, what we did post-financial crisis is that we buffered up the financial system and all this float was like a claim on a theoretical liquid resources. But if the material liquid equivalents, aka food, whatever, is not existing in the real economy, then there's a mismatch because there's because actually the finance is just a reflection of the real economy. So 
It's supposed to be. It's, it's supposed like, to be. I have a really convoluted way of saying that um, I think we over these reserves in real time settlement are never going to match the reality on the ground because you, you, if you're trading, you know, toilet paper, you can't <laughs> just suddenly like square a shortage of. Like we were saying about, oh, it wasn't with you, someone else. We we're talking about the microchip shock shortage. It's just not something that can be resolved overnight. Because right. it takes technical skills. You know, you can't just develop a uh, a chip manufacturer overnight. So, and I would argue it's the same thing even in the financial space. That reserves have a limited function that doesn't necessarily lead to credit creation. For example, you know, yes. a company, a bank that is balance sheet constrained may have all the reserves it ever needs. But that doesn't mean it will start making loans because it has other factors that it needs to pay attention to. And in many ways, as you just pointed out, the creation of reserves has actually been an imposition on its balance sheet, as we're seeing now with the SLR cliff, that maybe that reserves have actually a downside that hinder credit creation. So it's not, you know, it's not in a one to one where we think, oh, the Fed creates a bunch of reserves that eliminates settlement risk in these payment networks but it may create problems or may not solve problems in the larger, wider financial system, which is how credit and money gets out and distributed to the rest of the system. And I think that's why I loved your article because you're pointing out that, okay, everybody thinks reserves, maybe if you don't think it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a uniformly or homogeneously positive thing, everybody thinks it's at least neutral. Right. Yes. Yes. We, yes. There's no downside, right? The Fed prints money; it's reserves. They just—I mean, who wouldn't want a bunch of reserves sitting on their balance sheet? And you're, no, wait a minute. There's there might be some downside to it here that nobody wants to talk about because why would we want to talk about the downside of the Fed creating reserves? Reserves have to be funded. I mean, everything has to be funded by something, and and I guess that's my criticism of Gosbank as well, which is that you know, when when we're talking about sort of CBDCs and things like that. Um, we're only focused on one side of the balance sheet, which is the, the the central bank liabilities, right? But but nobody's talking about you know the asset side, and those assets have to be representative of productive value. And and if you have the entire sort of uh, banking system being um, undercut by central bank money, and you get a huge transfer of liquid um, deposits from from banks over to the central bank, that increases the flow which will have to be back like the, the, to, to maintain the liquidity to be able to, to service that liquidity the central bank will have to start making active investments that that create seniorage at a better, better rate than it's you know giving out otherwise otherwise there will be a negative equity situation on the balance sheet and 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 when you get the central bank making these decisions about where they allocate that liquidity to um that is not a good thing that uh, is always uh, leads to problems <laughs> state yeah. it's just state banking under a different name right it's going the wrong direction because ideally the commercial banking sector is what we want making intermediation decisions that's what it's for even in just primary markets we want dealers to be able to say this is a good this company wants to sell its bonds we believe that these bonds are sellable we don't want central banks making those decisions because they're not equipped to make those decisions and so and the more that the BOE like announcing it has a green agenda or you know exporting oh, yeah, yeah. like you know fine I get that it's you know it cares about the environment and wants to make a change and I used to think this was a good idea actually but 
what I worry about is, you know, I think maybe the, the market is more intelligent. And I worry with the green thing because I'm not convinced we know what technology is going to actually get us out of this crisis. Um, and I'm not sure that subsidies, which is what this would be effectively uh, equated to, are going to help innovation. Because if you are getting subsidies to create what might turn out to be not the solution that we're looking for, then you're just like, you're actually impeding the innovation that we need. Yeah, crowding it out. Is I mean, that's my instinct. I don't know if it's, yeah. you know. What do you it's think? Bit, well, it's mission creep. Central banks have done such a poor job at their primary mission because they can't do their primary mission. They've decided, well, we need to start looking at other ways. And it's fine. Yeah. It's kind of funny that they've they've moved into these other, you know, climate change is one that especially the European Central Bank has made a focus on as their quantitative easing programs get repeated and, and they can't really answer questions about it. It's sort of like all right, people are kind of on to us about this QE business. We better come up with different ways to stay in business, which right. is not what we want a central bank to do. They and have a specific mandates, job. And their mandates are being like torn to shreds because suddenly it's just about, like this is right. basically against the whole principle of what they was, you know, they're not supposed to do that sort of stuff. And they don't, you know, it's, you know, if, if there's anything that's really positive and good about the climate agenda, let the banking system, let the market, like the market find out what it is let prices dictate where they're supposed to go let the people who understand these things do it not central bank i mean that's going in the exact wrong direction this is my counter theory on bitcoin is that everyone's like freaking out about its energy footprint and i'm just wondering if as we suppress like the real market for green energy and uh, because of all this sort of you know guided hand well not guided hand actually the opposite sort of command economy stuff um, Bitcoin becomes the only free market for real, uh, real sort of clean energy innovation because Bitcoin has a massive incentive to get cheaper energy, massive, massive, and 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 you know that the innovation in 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 sort of clean energy is now coming from that area because um, those guys, you know, so they're, they're the ones that are relocating servers to you know sources of like hydropower or. Yeah. You know, and I used to argue, well, it's displacement, that green energy could have been going to something more more worthwhile. But you know what? I now think that it's like, why wasn't, why wasn't like a Barclays bank putting their servers in Iceland? Like, why? I mean, clearly they could have done it. Why weren't they doing it? Why isn't, you know, so... so so it starts a trend that is actually useful in in some ways and now everyone's going to iceland but um um it's it, so i'm just wondering if i was thinking about it wrong and um so i'm a bit more open-minded about bitcoin these days and nfts I, I i mean i find those interesting for you because my instinct is that they are kind of the euro dollar market rebound. So cryptocurrencies were supposed to be the euro dollar market rebound, but then they got regulated out. So they're no longer like crypto is no longer the euro dollar um, innovation because uh, it is, um, you know, regulated to high hell. So it's effectively, what was that regime that changed everything in euro dollar markets in America? Um, there was a, oh, you should know. <laughs> uh, there was a, there was a, um, the, it made the interest rate arbitrage possible. Oh, Regulation Q. That was it. Re Regulation Q. Oh, yeah. on. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Uh, anyway, um, so that 
has now effectively been ha that's happened to uh, crypto because you know everyone so if you want to service if you want to get a crypto license you have to abide by the same rules so there's no no advantage really you you're you're bound by the same bureaucracy and and, and all all the same sort of interest rate costs so um so nfts are now the new kind of crypt euro dollars trying to come back in there is my view so do you know what I mean? It's like this yes, private money, private money, but, yes. but not on the blockchain because the, the thing about people, the tr big transaction that it never went through the blockchain. And this is, of course, art has always been like this. Art would get like dumped in warehouses in Geneva and people would, would um, issue warehouse receipts against it. And that was like the tradable currency. And it was totally you know, in the black market, you couldn't see who was settling what against. And it was just, so the float was funded by the art and then the depository receipts were just used to settle payments between, you know, anonymously, anonymously in the underworld, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And I think and, that, I think that's where the crypto kind of gets it wrong. I think we want money to be more transparent, not less. And there's always, there's always going to be certain elements of the monetary system that have advantages in being in the shadows. And I would argue that's the commercial banking sector today, especially when you think, think, uh, think about things like repo collateral. They, okay. operate, they operate in the shadows and like the ability to anonymously repledge and rehypothecate and do all the things that they do. But I'm not sure that's, that's good for the system and society. And I actually think that we should move beyond their needs and get back to what I think is more capitalist-like in and realizing that capital is essentially not anonymous. It's a transparent system where everybody knows the rules and can figure out what everybody else is doing. So I think crypto kind of has the wrong idea in, its, in, its, in, in how it was begun. Certainly Bitcoin was the idea that we're going we're gonna to be the alternative to government money. We're going to be private anonymous money. And I think that they, in making that decision, they sort of limited the usage or the usefulness of the technology. And so maybe in a couple of generations further along, a much better blockchain type system where it's easy for everybody to see what everybody else is doing actually solves a lot of these problems. And I think it does um, create enough incentives and benefits that even those who would, who would have a better uh, business model working in the dark would realize that, you know, I think it's it, this other way of doing things is better. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I know we're coming up to time. Sorry, but it's just such an interesting conversation. I just want to know what you like, bounce this off you, whether it goes in the podcast or not. Um, it's that, um, so I think you're right, but crypto has the problem in that transparency becomes hyper-transparency because of the blockchain. Yeah. And so it's a really... It, like you want transparency but you don't want that much transparency like you don't want like a stalker to be able to figure out where you went for like you know dinner yesterday and everyone's personal accounts being yeah that is a security risk in its own right right so there has to be a balance and at the moment um you know the banking system kind of comes up with this like you know need to know situation which is fair enough like i think that's okay and crypto has been absorbed into that system now. So all the advantages, all the sort of anonymity stuff, it's, it's basically gone away because KYC applies to almost every single yeah. platform now. So the days when crypto was anonymous, it's just like... Just, oh, just oh. So people know KYC is Know Your Customer, which is a government-led um, government uh, effort to get banks to spot anomalies 
instead of waiting for bad things to happen, to become intrusive in their customer base and basically build up a database so that they can predict when people are doing bad things. It's not just about money laundering and drug deals and things like that, but all sorts of other things. Yeah, and it's like if you suddenly get like, or you you know, you were just like a student and then suddenly you're getting a thousand dollars in cash. Yeah, and exactly. In your account every week. Um, that that's a red flag, and they will want to know where it comes from. And so, um, so that that Bitcoin has been entirely absorbed into the like into the transparent system. So that advantage is long gone. And I used to argue that. Well, that just gives us like, what's the point of Bitcoin then? And um, in fact, from my perspective, I find it more dangerous because there's so much transparency on the blockchain. But actually what's happening is that the Coinbases and all those guys, they do most of their transactions off chain anyway. So there's a certain anonymity provided by that system. So if you bank with, with Coinbase, your transaction isn't going to be obviously on the big, on the on the blockchain necessarily, especially if you're doing transactions within that microcosm, right? So, um, so there is there's going to be layered layered privacy, I think. And then, but what 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 Bitcoin does do, and this is going back to your point about capitalism, is that for capitalism to work, everyone has to be on a level playing field, and that's impossible when you've got competitive devaluation across the kind of financial system, because you have no shared anchor or shared you know collective view of what value is and i don't think bitcoin is going to be the new payment system i think we'll have layered like private systems that are quite centralized on top but it could become a new form of collateral that at least anchors all the kind of competing systems to a singular like you know i'm not i'm not obsessive about gold but it is gold had its issues and but this at least anchors everyone to a similar value set and maybe that's a good thing that's good. kind of where i'm going is that blockchain forms the backbone of you know as you said sort of like replicates the role of gold as money that we have money and then we have currency at layered systems right exactly. and that and when you get into the currency part of it that's where you preserve anonymity on a very micro scale but on the macro scale we want full transparency and i think that's we both agree exactly that I think we're maybe saying it a little differently, but we agree that's what we want to see is that we want to go back sort of like to replicate the gold-based system where it had, you know, non-fungible, transparent rules that everybody understood. You own metal, therefore you had something of value of money. But we're not going to go back to a gold system. That's just never going to happen. I'm sorry, gold bugs. It's, it's just, it's not going to happen. It's not in this digital age. And so... If we can replicate the best aspects of that, where we have this collateral-based, blockchain-based monetary system, and then layer currency systems on top of it that are at least um, disciplined and uh, are in some way linked in a very specific manner to the the monetary blockchain part of it, well, they, can, they don't have to be the same. They could be, like, within a jurisdiction, they can be the same. But, like, there's no reason why the American system has to be the same as the... Exactly. Yeah. Historically, there's never been a global currency. There's always been currency blocks. And I actually think competition is the way to I, go. I, I I'd like to see multiple different systems in the U.S. Yeah. The, so, that, that, fundamentally, what makes a currency is, is not just the currency. It's how you organize your economy and all that sort of stuff. So, I see it as blockchain... Block, Bitcoin maybe being the anchor between all these competing systems and that they can finally be measured on equal terms, which they can't at the moment because you had competitive devaluation by China for so long, right? How can you measure whether 
China's really adding value or whether it's just, you know, a transfer of wealth that doesn't grow the pie. Because you can't, because because what's been happening is that Chinese growth, like I, I compared China once to like Uber, because it's the same concept. Like it's it's just it's just undercutting its way to to it, it's grabbing market share through undercutting, right? And it had like the capacity to do that because it had a bunch of like really poor people it could exploit, and they they had a. Have you seen these documentary by the way, American Factory? No. On, you should watch it it's really good it's it's about how like the chinese come to america and open a factory and they find that like they can't function in america because american workers are too lazy <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they're just horrific and it's hilarious because they're like communists but they they, they won't let them start a trade union so they're anti-union <laughs> and um they're more capitalists than the capitalists right yeah it's brilliant i and it's it was it was actually produced by obama but it, it's it's a it's really, i really recommend it sorry so I, i've been we've been yabbering on no that's, i think we need to wrap it up anyway and i think that's probably a good place to start because i think you know look crypto is is crypto is a there's i don't want to say the future but crypto is part of the future a big part of the future and i think people need to get ready for the fact that um they shouldn't fear this kind of stuff because, you know, the way the system we have now isn't working. And if we, if we realize that it's not working, that it needs to be replaced, we can start more easily, more easily accepting the fact that it, that it not both it needs to be replaced, but also there are different possible solutions out there and nobody should have the right to say this one will work and this one won't. I yeah. think we should let them decide, let them, let them free into the marketplace and we'll figure out which one's which. The market will decide and I yes, think competition and prices and I think there's definitely now you know having I've done the biggest job ever scrutinizing Bitcoin and I think I've come to the conclusion that you know it, there is a role for it and it's not it's not gonna you know happen overnight but I think institutional money will change everything and um if I only like NFTs, the only point I was going to make is I think that's the market pulling back from that transparency. The NFT markets, like the big people transaction, didn't go on the blockchain, and that was intentional. I think that was like a marketing exercise for the underworld to sort of say, <laughs> hey, we still have this capacity to mega like $69 million. Can, like, up to $69 million can be transacted, and there'll be no evidence of it on the blockchain, you know? Yeah. That's, I mean, there's always going to be crime and even just need for an anonymity. I can't say the word. There's going to be the need for anonymity. And we, on a, again, on a personal level, we want to preserve that. But systemically, I think that we, we need to get people to realize that systemically, money, monetarily, that uh, transparency is far, far preferable, far more preferable. We're agreed. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm sorry you're going to have a like troubling time editing all this. No, this is not wonderful. at all. We'll have 10 episodes now. So oh, this no, is excellent. No. <laughs> I'm exaggerating. I'm joking. No, for me, this is wonderful. I get to sit back and just listen. So I know the audience is going to love this as well. Isabella, thank you so much. Where can the audience find you? And in, include the, the work that you've been doing on Clubhouse lately. I think that's a new, interesting uh, avenue for media communication. So tell us anything about that, plus the usual places. 
We are on www.fd.com now, stroke Alphaville. Um, we are, I have, you can read my tweets and we have just started Clubhouse, which I think is a very promising platform. I like it because it's humanizing social media. It means you have to like actually speak to people with human tone. And I think that might help cut through some of the horrific sort of, you know, arguing that goes on on Twitter because like, I think that's a result of dehumanization. Um, so I'm, I'm very optimistic about Clubhouse, although I'm a bit worried about whether or not the Chinese have too much data on it. But other than that, I think it's really good. Um, so yeah, check us out. We've got a NFT chat. I don't know if it will be before or after um, Thursday this week um, at 9 p.m. UK time. Thank you so much, Isabella. We really appreciate it. And I think it was a really good discussion about a lot of good topics. So, Well, drop by to our NFT chat. We'd love to hear from you. I'll talk sure. about it. Yeah, I think you'd add some. Actually, you'd have some very interesting perspectives. I think. Probably. Thank Thanks you very much. Thank you. Yeah, and, and do please cut out anything that is libelous or makes me look stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think no, there was nothing, anything nothing. for either of those. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> All right. Take care then. Thank you. It's a really fun right. chat. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye.